Charleston, South Carolina. Portland, Oregon. Charlottesville, Virginia. What do all these cities have in common? As I'm sure most listeners are aware, these cities have been the location of recent white, white supremacist violence in the United States. And at the start of the year, I spoke with Kelly J. Baker about the relationship between Protestantism and white nationalism in the United States. But the reality of white supremacy goes beyond the KKK in this country and actually ties into some strands of racial superiority historically rooted in Europe. So I met up with Kayvon Fashami at his home to discuss this other side of white supremacy. Kayvon is a doctoral candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder, specializing in historical materials research into white nationalist movements, and actually was recently interviewed after the Charlottesville attack. And I will post a link to that interview in the show notes. So welcome, Kayvon. Hi, nice to be here. Um, so just to kind of get started, uh, since I talked with Kelly about the KKK, how is what you research different? So in some senses it's not, and in some senses it is. I do still do research on the KKK, um, and historically the KKK have been a, a crucial branch of white nationalist uh, kind of thought more broadly in the kind of sense that I approach it, where I'm mostly trying to think about groups of people and movements and ideas that are oriented at um, establishing some sort of like uh, geographical entity or some mm -hmm. kind of like communal project, some sort of nation, if you will, um, around certain shared notions of what whiteness and racial or certain racial identities are. So in some senses, there is a lot of overlap here, but a lot of what I tend to study and the origins of the white, of white genocide, which is the sort of focus of my research, tend to come from um, either non-Christian or very much anti-Christian roots. So in that sense, the Klan's connection to to Protestantism has often set it at odds at times with other facets of the movement that mm -hmm. I tend to study more. Although you're seeing less of that now, you'll often see the Klan members joining neo-Nazis, joining other Odinist groups and the like to do not only cross-lightings, but swastika lightings. So there's um, those differences are kind of breaking down to some extent, but there is a sort of tension, and there has been historically in white nationalism through its history between a sort of pre-Christian, pre- or sort of paganist, neo-paganist uh -huh. sort of um, orientation and the more like Christian sections of the movement. Okay, so you mentioned you, you mentioned a phrase in that answer, white genocide. Mm -hmm. I know you and I have talked about this before, but sure. what is white genocide? So that's also that's a really difficult <laughs> question to answer also. Um, this is going to be the subject of my dissertation. So it's, in one sense, we could talk about it as an ideology, but that doesn't fully capture it. In another sense, we could talk about it as a worldview or a conspiracy theory. But it's, um, I think it's a much more dynamic thing than that. But really what it, what it kind of references in broad strokes, if I can kind of simplify it maybe a little too much, but to make it a little easier to grasp in a few sentences, is that it's a set of anxieties, common anxieties, that you see throughout all of kind of white national, through most of white nationalism's history, let's say, through a lot of its writing, through a lot of its um, uh, publications, through a lot of its member statements, both in the, in the digital era and before. It's not really given the name white genocide until the 1980s by a specific um, um, individual, but the same anxieties that he writes about, David, this fellow named David Lane in, uh, in his White Genocide Manifesto, those specific anxieties that he lays out, you can trace similar, um, similar thoughts all the way back to 19th century German romanticists. Um, anxieties about 
the racial integrity of the nation, the purity of the nation, the purity of the, the racial spirit of a people's. Um, so what are some of these anxieties? So one of the really kind of most common ones um, is a sort of like anti-capitalist inflected anxiety about the displacement of traditional ways of life. Uh, some of the roots of the really kind of roots of these ideas, I think you'll find in a sort of romanticist response to industrial development, particularly mm-hmm. in Germany and Austria. Um, but you also find it across the rest of Europe also, and even in the United States to some extent. Um, so that's one of the sort of key ideas is that like our sort of traditional ways of life are good, you know, these good sort of natural close to the land uh, ways the agrar- of living. The agrarian values, right. basically. The agrarian ideal, Absolutely is um, kind of getting paved under by this sort of capitalist development, which is rampant. And it's no accident that a lot of these people that are um, developing this stuff are anti-Semites. So, of course, Jews then are kind of like lumped in as one of the clear Mm -hmm. kind of one of the driving causes behind this industrial development and displacement of traditional modes of life. I will say um, in the uh, article you sent me um, about white genocide, I was very uh, concerned how much... It's like this Jewish agenda of, like, feminism is a Jewish agenda. And I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> right. So there, the, the, so it's not just, say, the, like, kind of industrial development displacing traditional modes of life that are identified as a sort of Jewish agenda, agenda for destroying the white race. Um, longstanding notions in, the, like, large swaths of white nationalism. Not all of it is anti-Semitic, but the majority is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a large-standing notion that Jewish people have some sort of antagonistic relationship to this imagined Aryan peoples. And this is really also one of the kind of differences between the KKK, who's very much like a more Americanist, nativist-oriented sort of understanding of whiteness, to what I'm mostly researching, this notion of Aryanness, of a sort of esoteric, mythical, shared origin of the white race that hasn't always been, like, extended to all European peoples. It is more and more now, but, um, you know, it's traditionally sort of reserved for Teutonic peoples and Scandinavian peoples and maybe the English, um, given their sort of shared uh, ethnic backgrounds. So what you wind up seeing is this notion that this this esoteric ancient spe- peoples, right, mm-hmm. are have been locked in this timeless conflict. I mean, this is, and this is also kind of borrowed from Nietzsche, right, the genealogy of morals, that they've been locked in this timeless concept with um, a resentful Jewish peoples, right, who, you know, despise them, want to bring them low, like kind of subvert them to this sort of, yeah. what Nietzsche called this sort of slave mentality, right? Yes. Um, and so this is this is the kind of core, the crux of a lot of, of white genocide. And so what you see there is not just like, okay, it's industrial development, it's also stuff like feminism, because then it convinces white women to... Delay not, childbirth. Or not even have it, or, mm-hmm. you know, go out and date men of color, or all these other, like, you know, horribly taboo things for white nationalists. Um, as you, like, read in the... And, and white women especially are kind of a, a really important part of this narrative. Yes. As you read in the manifesto, he's talking about, oh, there's only, like, what is this, something like 8% of the world's, you know, population... Is, is white, and 2% then is women, and... Capable of bearing children, yes. So, you know... <laughs> You have that. Well, I mean, it's also really interesting that in some regards, then, uh, these movements are not really different when it comes to, like, gender relations much. Because, I mean, this concept of, like, female purity has been in existence in every single society. And it's more not a concept of white nationalism as much as it is just a 
broader concept of like the patriarchy. Right, right. Which has, you know, like long, I mean, I'm sure there are people <laughs> that can speak to this more than I can, but you know, has like a long history in, in human civilization, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and this is where one of the difficulties with trying to pin down exactly what, what genocide is comes from, because it is interrelated with all these other anxieties, you know, I mean, like the industrial development of the 19th century and, and arguably onward into today, I mean, capitalist development more broadly, has been incredibly detrimental for mm-hmm. people, and people have come up with a whole host of different responses to it, from left-wing nationalism to, you know, in the, we see in like Latin America to labor militancy across the world. Um, so this is like one facet of a response to larger things that borrows from all kinds of other, you know, social practices, including patriarchal and misogynistic views yep. of women. Even today, um, if uh, your listeners are familiar with the notion of like the red pill MRA movements, where yes. it's like you know the people who've woken up and seen the you know, that the world is run by women. Uh. Just to clarify, MRA stands for Men's Rights Activists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so these people, um, you know, like a lot of prominent red pillars are also white nationalists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Daily Stormer, for instance, where the article I sent you came from, they're uh, one of the kind of creator and lead writer, Andrew Anglin, is a avowed um, red pillar. And that's one of the really important things to talk about is like, even though I tend to talk about this all as a sort of umbrella concept, in the sense that, like, these are groups of people who are interested in some sort of shared nation, whether mm-hmm. it's a geographical entity or an imagined project or whatever you have it, around notions of a, of a unified racial understanding. These groups are nevertheless very, very diverse, have very different outlooks. Yep. And so, like, there is a very vibrant sort of alternative public sphere, or whatever you want to call it, and call it counter public sphere. Um, it's a counterculture. We just sure, we, sure. we idealize the that term of counterculture because of the 1960s but there are countercultures with which people don't agree and this is one of them oh absolutely yeah. yeah i mean it has its own music it has its own art it has its own um you know cultural scenes and everything even in craft arts and crafts are mm-hmm. very popular So yeah, this stuff, um, and and even so, at the end of the White Genocide Manifesto, I don't know if you noticed the kind of closing sentence, but it's 14 words long, yep. and it's become a very kind of important, another very very important facet for white nationalist movements about the kind of holy 14 words, if you will, which you'll see the number 14 represented on a lot of white nationalist material. Um, and those 14 words are, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, right? And so, like, it's very much that notion we have to save a future for white children. So, all right, if it's referred to as the Holy 14 Words, and you mentioned that you see the number 14 kind of appear all over the place, mm-hmm. and that just, you know, really seems similar to me, like, the number 7, uh, and way some Christians see that the number 7 is very... You know, prominent in the Bible and the way we bring numerology into Christianity, and I find that fascinating and this like very sacred language around um, concepts in this movement, um, especially because in the White Genocide Manifesto there is a lot of language around religion and religious institutions as being the prostitutes of the capitalist system, and how that seemed to be very contradictory to some of the other things that I saw on the, the, the website, such as, um, you know, Thor's hammer was being very displayed very prominently in the, the, ba- the website banner. Um, and that throughout the manifesto, there was use of very deistic language, like the, the nature's God was referred to very often. 
So do they, does this movement see this as being contradictory of like, like basically belittling religion constantly, but yet valorizing and using religious language on another, on another side. So to kind of, I'll address each point in turn. Um, so the first point about the question about kind of numerology, uh, it should be noted, David Lane, the guy that wrote the White Genocide Manifesto, also I should probably also point out, he wrote it um, while he was imprisoned actually here in Colorado. I know he was at AD Explorance for a little while and he spent some time elsewhere. Okay. He was a member of a violent white nationalist terrorist organization. So he wound up doing life in prison. So while he was in prison, this is where he does a lot of his writing. He writes a whole volume of things, including the White Genocide Manifesto. So Lane is actually very interested in numerology. He's um, kind of convinced that he's found, uh, and I don't know as much, I haven't delved as much into his like sort of um, numero- numerological writings and then this notion of what he called the pyramid prophecy, which was this belief that he had found a numerical code in the Bible that would kind of, that if you read it the right way, you could brush away all the Semitic aspects of it and then find the true Aryan core of the Bible. Because yes, Lane is, like a lot of the movement, militantly opposed to Judeo-Christianity. You know, he talks about Judeo-Christianity mm-hmm. as playing a leveling role and thus aiding in genocide. You know, yes, he talks about the system's prostitutes and yes. the clergy is a big part of that. What he's talking about primarily are American Protestant um, right-wing people, especially. Um, he views these kind of like God, God and country types as putting God and country above the race, mm-hmm. which is, um, of course, for him, you mm-hmm. know, complicit, being complicit in genocide. But it's deeper than that because, again, and this is where, um, you know, Nietzsche's influence, and I'm sure some Nietzscheans would um, kind of take umbrage at this, and that's fair enough. You know, Nietzsche can, like any thinker, it can be very misinterpreted. But Nietzsche's influence on the movement is one of like kind of pointing out that this like Christianity is itself a Semitic religion. Mm-hmm. It encourages this notion of like a sort of slave morality in more common stuff. It's also tied in with Islam, which we know is not exactly very popular among most white well. nationalists. <laughs> um, and so this, these like sort of three different religions, these Abrahamic religions are viewed of as a sort of like as one black metal song by a U.S. black metal band puts it an Abrahamic contagion of the white race. So this is the kind of religion that they're opposed to. But the old-time religion, if you will, the pre-Christian pagan practices of European peoples are valorized. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Lane was born in Woden, um, I think Iowa or Idaho, um, one of the I states. Okay. But, you know, Woden, yeah. of course, be Woden, <laughs> like Volton, German, Odin. Odin. Um, so he actually added Woden's son to his uh, last name, or uh, to his name. Um, and, you know, his, uh, his wife and good friend Ron McVann who ran the 14 Words Press that published a lot of his writing, also published a pamphlet called Votan's Folk that was about, you know, like, the folk of Odin, people mm-hmm. of Odin, that are, that's, like, kind of looking at, uh, or sort of, like, kind of, you know, are advocating for a return to, like, this sort of heroic, pre-Christian, like, you know, Aryan roots of the white race, but very much through a sort of Odinist or Votanist sort of frame. So I'm really curious... Okay, well, first, I want to put out the disclaimer that um, followers of Odinism and uh, any variations of neo-Norse practices are not automatically Absolutely. white supremacists and white nationalists. Absolutely. It's been unfortunate because there are actually really interestingly the Southern Poverty Law Center on their website when they talk about the use of Thor's hammer in these movements explicitly states please do not assume anybody wearing a Thor's hammer is automatically a white supremacist because you need to figure out the context in which they're wearing it. 
Um, but I am curious as to what the attraction is of Odinism and this Norse practice versus another pre-Christian kind of tradition. Um. So, well, yeah, and so uh, at some point here, we kind of have to step a little more into the realm of speculation from my research, but um, so as far as the attraction of sort of pre-Christian, oh, actually, let me back up and let me just address that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Odinism is a much broader, or like Asatruism, or, or different, yeah. you know, different terms for it, is much broader and much more diverse than just like sort of white nationalist or white oriented, even white oriented. You have people of color who identify as Odinists and, and on and on. But this has nevertheless been like a kind of core part of it, and even, um, you know, a, a lot of kind of writings that have been influential on sort of modern Odinism, say like the work of Aguido von Liszt is inseparable also from the development of like white nationalist thought. Guido von Liszt himself was an anti-Semitic German nationalist, an Austrian who hated Slavs. You know, he was living at the time of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and did not like the Slavic portion of his, uh, of his home country. Um, and so like his, his sort of nationalism was very much embedded in this sort of like understanding of the German race. So, but, to, but absolutely, you know, Odinism oftentimes, and th- there is a distinction white nationalists themselves will make. They'll call themselves Votanists sometimes. Okay. And this isn't universal, but you will get ones that will refer to themselves as Votanists to sort of differentiate themselves from Odinists, which aren't necessarily racially based. So as far as the attraction goes, um, that's, that's ex- kind of exactly one of the aspects I'm working on with my research. And I think a lot of this does go back to that German romanticism of the 19th century. So you have to keep in mind, Germany doesn't become a state until 1872. What you see with these German romanticists is a question of what does it mean to be German? Mm-hmm. Somebody who speaks the German language, right? And so into this, into this area, this is where the fun kind of folkish movement comes out of. There's all these sort of anxieties that come around, you know, that you, you don't even just see white nationalists talking about, but you see this in the writing of like Georg Simmel, yes. Ferdinand Antunes, two kind of famous German 19th century um, or 19th, early 20th century sociologists, you know, talking about the kind of famous concepts of the Gemeinschaft, the kind of local who, community. Who do explain, um, you know, we're not part not, of Not white nationalists, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying is like, I mean, this, these anxieties are broad, mm-hmm. broadly throughout the culture. So into this, into this space steps people like Guido von Liszt, who are, you know, von Liszt himself describes him when he's younger that he had this vision that in an ancient, like, Saxon crypt or something, some ancient, like, you know, pre-Christian crypt. Uh, somewhere where he has this like kind of vision where he realizes that like oh you know the god of Christianity is the false god and his ancestors are you know his ancestors are speaking to him through the voice of Odin and the woods and all this stuff so he becomes a sort of kind of aristocratic mystic and like Uh spends a lot of time kind of hanging out in the woods sitting on these old rune stones or old standing stones and imagining his ancient peoples and writing down their (laughs) runic alphabet and you know coming up with all these different aspects of like you know sort of Aryanic peoples and culture and stuff um and so his writings were very, very influential. You know, there's a society named the Nazano, the Von Liszt Society, that had, um, you know, significant influence on people who would become later members of the Nazi party. Um, but it's also, it's a sort of, you know, I mean, it's got this very kind of romantic appealing, you know, like the sort of return to the countryside, return to the woods, return to nature sort of aspect to it. There's a lot of heroism embedded in it, a lot of these kind of big romantic ideals, friendship and brotherly love. And concepts of masculine, yeah, concepts right. of masculinity.
So, um, I have a question that I have enjoyed asking researchers who are still technically students all at the same time. How did you come into this topic? Like, how did you get into having this be what your dissertation is going to be about? Um, oh, it's like, it's a longish story, but, um, you know, when I was, when I was younger, my dad helped organize, who was one of, one of many people that organized a counter rally to a KKK march in our hometown. Um, and was, you know, young enough that I still didn't, could really grasp what this was all about. Uh-huh. I wanted to go, my dad wouldn't take me. Um, and, you know, like, kind of tried to explain racism to me. I come from an interracial household, so that's, or wasn't the thing that made a ton of sense <laughs> at the time. You know, I mean, you have some, like, vague understanding of slavery and the KKK and on and on and on. But, you know, as a kid, it still just didn't kind of make a ton of sense. So I think that touched a sort of lifelong interest and one that I didn't really do a lot of scholarship around, but just would, you know, I subscribed to the Intelligence Report, which is the Southern Poverty Law Center's uh, quarterly magazine. You know, we'd get that in the mail and just read about it because I just thought it was interesting in a sense, like uh, kind of, you know, maybe morbid curiosity or whatever, but just like not really, you know, just trying to understand the sort of like, to me anyway, incomprehensible mindset. Um, and then, you know, growing up, I would be at punk shows sometimes uh, as a teenager where, you know, skinheads would show up and cause a fracas or whatever. So it was like kind of there. Um, and then, you know, just as I uh, was starting my PhD and thinking I wanted to do something a little more political for my research project, uh, I was kind of thinking about potential topics. And the Pegida movement uh, started making news. This would have been around the time of Christmas 2014. Pegida. Uh, is a German acronym that stands for Patriotic um, Europeans Against the Islamization of the Occident. Um, and they started getting rallies of like, you know, tens of thousands of people, one as big as 40,000 in, um, in Dresden in Germany. And of course, you know, I was thinking like, oh my God, like here we are like in, you know, 2014 and mm-hmm. there are 40,000 people marching against Muslims in a German city. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> maybe I should look into this a little more. So I started looking into it and thinking, like, man, there's this whole world that's just, like, of, of these people that's right under the surface, and we don't see it, but it's there, and it's, like, I mean, it's so deeply interconnected, and started doing more and more research on it in those ensuing six months or so. And then you had two incidents happen in the June of 2015. You had the uh, um, attack on the church in Charleston, South Carolina, by Dylan Roof, and then you had Donald Trump shortly there and after or slightly before, I can't remember which came first, but announced his candidacy uh-huh. in very kind of openly white nationalist terms to which, you know, the Daily Stormer, you know, <laughs> like was effusive in praise and very excited. Um, and, you know, so I was like, oh, uh, there's, 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 there's definitely something here that needs to be talked about more. Not to say that there aren't tons of people already doing work on this, but, you know, this was like a thing that was like, oh, this is, I think, a very important time and a political topic. And, you know, the past two years since then, I mean, there's only just born that out. Yeah, more and just more, more and more. As I've kind of watched this, what at the time when I first kind of stumbled into it, uh, like was a kind of sub- subculture right under the surface waiting to burst through, I think has now managed to accomplish that to some mm-hmm. extent or another. So, so we already kind of talked about the countercultural aspects of it, but I want to dive into that a little bit more um, because I know that's actually where a lot of your research is been lately mm-hmm. and I know we have talked about um, black metal music and there's a pile of publications that you put in front of me so why don't we talk about the music and these publications a little bit so this is a kind of British band that um, 
puts it so it kind of identifies itself as sort of a Yorkshire nationalist, like Northern England kind of thing, which of course <laughs> then ties it into Viking Scandinavian yeah, it does. stuff. So you notice like there's a ton of like rune symbolism on uh, the back, and then you know like the White Rose of Yorkshire on the cover there. Um, there's the Odal rune again on another one of their records. Oh, that's okay, that's how like. it goes. Yeah. I was trying to draw. Yeah, it's hard to hard to describe. Um, you know. And now to... I know because I now recognize what the SS one would be because I've seen it before. Yeah, it has little wings on it. Um, and you know I've seen music videos for kind of Slavic nationalist bands use the winged oval rune. Um, you'll see that pretty commonly. Also, just for all the listeners who really want to know what we're looking at, I'll post photos and everything in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, and so you you know listen to what like a band like this. There's nothing to tell you that this band is you know any kind of orientation away nationalism uh-huh. you know maybe they're just kind of yorkshire sort of pagan sort of outlook and with a lot of the stuff there's enough gray area there that this i think actually kind of makes it an interesting kind of entry point uh-huh. into white nationalism because there's enough overlap and gray area and and connection with non-nationalist sort of people or non-nationalist uh, practices that you know they can kind of like insinuate themselves and and kind of insinuate these practices well, it's just with like any counterculture, you 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 introduce somebody through the most like the least nefarious means possible. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. And then a lot of that stuff. I mean, it, it very much seems that way. So like this is um, an album by a band called Bill Skinner. Uh, it's a German German one one person one man uh, band. Uh, and you know, on the cover, okay, there's you know like some like kind of romanticist sort of Viking painting. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a guy on a horse. Uh, be Thor. I think it's supposed to be Thor with the winged hat. Right. Um, You know, and then, but then you look at the name of the album and it's Amaneva, which is the, which was the name of um, Heinrich Himmler's uh, sort of institute for research into the German people's Aryan ancestry, right? As like the pagan front on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a collection of black metal bands um, that like a sort of like loose organization of them that were very much into kind of nationalist pagan understanding of their heritage and that sort of thing. Uh, another Bill Skinner album, he's got a couple of them. Um, they're one of, I think, one of the more interesting ones in this area. You know, like, oh, there's Odin, you know. Yeah. Um, seems, again, like, you, there's nothing here that would really tell you. Even, you know, you go read the lyrics and stuff, you know, there's some songs about, like, fighting and never giving up and fighting on, but, like, there's nothing, both on Red Avivus, like... Odin, well, I don't know what Red Avivus is. I'm assuming it's something like, uh, you know, like, Born Again or Returns or, you know, mm. like... Um, you know, or then another one, yeah, Voltans Folk seems fairly innocuous, except for Voltans Folk is also the name of the um, the sort of spiritual yeah. path that McVan and David Lane's wife uh, founded. Well, I'll be completely honest, until until I met you, <laughs> if I were to have read this, I would have been like, oh, Odin people. Like, sure. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't automatically assume it's white nationalist, which mm-hmm. now terrifies me. and that's I mean and that's the thing is like there's nothing here to tell you but the the guy um, his name's Marcus Hartmann Um, he goes by the name Vidar it's something like Marcus Hartmann but he is in other bands you know he's got another band called Ofetnar which is like the kind of the berserkers or you know like these guys that would wear like animal skins and go chop people up Um, but uh, that band is you know very 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 uh, white nationalist like it's a style of music that's called like RAC like Rock Against Communism which has its roots in Britain in the 1980s um, so what's this what's this so last one? one this is a French band Cavan um, and uh, 
again, you'll see just the use of the swastika. I was saying, like, you know, um, I, yeah. I can send you some other, like, Russian and even Mexican and Filipino and a whole bunch of different examples in black metal of different cultures using the swastika. But this is just one I happen to have on hand at the moment. Um, which, is, which is very interesting because... You know, if you had just handed this to me without telling you it's a swastika, I would look at it and be like, oh, it's just this pretty, like, it's great Celtic. Christian drawing. Right. And then you do look at it longer, and then you're like, oh. There's a swastika <laughs> in there. Right. And that's a kind of Celtic stylization of it, which you'll see among a number of, you know, kind of Celtic-oriented uh, white nationalists. The Slavs have their own, have invented a symbol called the Kola Vrat that's swastika-like and is like now their ancient symbol of the swastika although from what I understand it was, wasn't invented until like the past you know in living memory alright well thank you um, so much Kayvon this has problem. been awesome I always enjoy all of our conversations <laughs> this is a pleasure thanks for thanks for having me um, happy to be on the show thanks One of the goals of Holy Media is to bring the broad realm of religion and media to listeners as if they're hanging out with me and the guest chatting over a beer. And I know we've all been there at a party, a pub, a cocktail hour, with a drink in hand, having some sort of philosophical, intellectual conversation. Or maybe that's just my group of friends. But... I've always thought of these as the times when we learn the most about the world and the people around us as we each share snippets of our own knowledge. And sometimes this casual chat over a beer translates to the recorded conversation of holy media, but other times episodes feel more like an interview. But I still want you, the listeners, to feel like you're having that pub chat experience. And so to help create it, I've always been pairing each episode with a beer. So originally, Jeremy and I would talk about the beers that we were drinking before we got into the meat of the conversation. And after Jeremy left, I ended up adding these beer pairings to the show's website. But I want to bring it back to the audio. So from now on, at the end of every episode, before the religion nerd moment, there will be a beer break. And I'll either be talking with the episode's guest or a willing friend over a beer. And this conversation is going to be about beer, but also kind of be a reflection, uh, follow-up ideas to the interview that you just heard. Because a lot of times, the interviews happen weeks or even sometimes months before they actually get published as an episode. So, without further ado, here's the first beer break where Kayvon and I chat about the aftermath of Charlottesville. Alright, um, so this is the first recorded beer pairing again since Jeremy left. Um, I'm drinking the Einstock Toasted Porter. Um, what are you drinking, Kayvon? Arctic Pale Ale. 
Arctic pale. Icelandic Arctic pale. Yes. How about that? Very, uh, very pale. Very well, pale. should we say skull? Skull. Skull. Or prost <laughs> is the German. I felt like we were drinking Icelandic beer. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, but. so it's been a while since we actually recorded our conversation, and since then, <laughs> lots has happened, including Charlottesville. Yeah. But you also were on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wound up uh, on uh, the local NBC affiliates morning show just to talk about Charlottesville and the alt right. They uh, they contacted the university and asked for me. Um, yeah, it was a it was an interesting experience <laughs> for sure. Um, it's my first TV appearance. Um, yeah, nerve wracking. A little bit. I mean, I went down there and it was like, okay, just treat this like public speaking class, right? Like you're just in front of your students talking to them about whatever and like. It went okay, I thought. I mean, it went pretty well for that. And, uh, you know, the guy they had me on, who's a um, professor at Met State and has a lot of, like, civil rights law practice, was... That's impressive, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Whitney Trailer. Shout out to him, because he was a boss. Um, like, and was really friendly and helpful um, before going on and everything. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was a short segment. I think it was, like, eight minutes max. So it wasn't like we really got super in-depth on the issues. It's still, like, live television, or was yeah. it recorded? No, it was live. Yeah, (laughs) and I was like, the most awkward part of it actually was um, when the guy was introducing us. It's like, where do I look? Because the camera was like off to the left, to my left, his right, and so like he's looking into the camera. It's like, do I also look at the camera? Do I look at him? And I think I glanced over at one point that like went back to looking at him. It was like, okay, and then also like I'm a fidgety person, so it's like try not to fidget. Just hands on the table. Just it was like took a concerted mental effort not to <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> don't fidget don't play with your hands don't like you know run your fingers through your hair just sit here and like be professional looking i guess so that's cool um yeah i really don't have a whole lot for us to talk about uh i mean well um, yeah i mean since charlottesville it's been <laughs> like kind of crazy for the research um the two websites I spent the most time looking at and was planning on using for my dissertation. Um, Did they say they were shut down? Yeah, so the Daily Stormer got booted right after Charlottesville because they wrote like a really just disgusting and awful piece about Heather Hare. Um, so GoDaddy and Google decided to pull their domain registration, hmm. and then Cloudflare also stopped giving them um, like DDoS protection, uh, uh, distributed denial of service for your listeners. Um, which is basically just, like, a way to prevent, um, like, you know, Being hackers yeah. on type and other people from basically, like, shutting down your website. Um, although, so they retreated to the dark web. They popped up on the regular web a few times. I think they're back up now, um, at least as of last night. They were still running on a new new domain. Um, but they've had trouble. But so they were on the dark web. They've also established uh, a presence on Gab, which is another, like, kind of social media service. Um, and they're distributing content through that also. They basically take stormer articles and convert them to image files and then yeah. have their uh, people distribute them for them like on Twitter and whatnot under the hashtag Samizdat which is like a reference to the networks in the Soviet Union that used to distribute uh, okay. banned material um, but yeah so like it, shutting down the stormer didn't really seem to be super effective um, and then shutting down in the age of the internet trying to block speech really isn't I mean like setting aside Moral arguments, like, you know, there is no moral equivalency between, like, white nationalists and people that oppose them. So it's not really a moral issue. It's not even a free speech issue. It's just a question of, like, practicality. Mm -hmm. Can you actually shut down speech in the age of the Internet? And it doesn't really seem like it's very effective. I mean, we're encountering the same issue with ISIS of 
Twitter for a while was shutting down ISIS accounts, but right. then like five more would just pop up. Right. It's like especially when they're free. Yeah. Or they move to other platforms where they're harder to track, mm-hmm. which is also you know one of the issues. Um, and that's so the other website they got shut down, Stormfront, which this I was going to be using these two in my dissertation. So now it's like, oh, what do we do? <laughs> um, but Stormfront also lost its domain just on Friday. Um, this is mm-hmm. really recent, so Friday, whatever. August, whatever date that was, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was just this past Friday. Um, and there's, it's not sure. I'm not sure if that's going to come back. There's been no word, at least that I've seen from uh, from uh, Stormfront's creator Don Black um, or any of the other staff. Haven't really, they haven't put out a statement yet about whether they're going to come back or not. I'm not sure what's going on there, but that's uh, that's another one. I mean, Stormfront has 300,000 registered users and. I don't know where those people are going to go. Or I mean, I'm sure they're not going to just be like, "Well, okay, like time to give up white nationalism." Like I imagine they're going to migrate to or other not sites. be public about it, you know? Right. Well, and there are other forums out there that are a lot worse than Stormfront in terms of at least like the rhetoric that they prove it. I mean, Stormfront has a long history of producing people that engage in violent action. Like mm-hmm. I mean, um, I saw an SPLC like Southern Poverty Law Center report. Um, they said they're responsible for like over a hundred murders. Like I've Stormfront people, Stormfront users have committed over a hundred murders um, over the years. Stormfront's been around since '95, so um, so like it's not like this site isn't dangerous, mm-hmm. but is shutting it down really the thing that's going to Quell, prevent yeah. that? Um, especially because like that creates the kind of um, or it, it, it fuels the kind of fear and paranoia that these movements thrive on, that the white genocide narrative we talked about thrives on. So it. Um, has the potential to actually create, like, a, you know, adverse reaction, right? And, like, push people to engage in more acts of violence. So, we'll see. Oh, yeah. I guess that's all we can do is say, we'll see you for now. <laughs> yeah. All religion nerd moment comes from a recent vacation and i did a lot of traveling this summer so if you're tired of hearing a religion nerd moment comes from a trip i'm sorry but i uh was in wittenberg germany for a conference um in august and uh if for those of you who don't know wittenberg is a location of where the famous 95 theses were um nailed debatable nailed to um a door and kind of kicked off Martin Luther's attempt to reform the Catholic Church and then eventual break with the Catholic Church and development of Protestantism. Uh, it's also the 500 year anniversary of this event, and the anniversary has been going on um, well, celebrations for the anniversary have been going on since the fall of 2016, but the actual date to the anniversary is October 31st of this year. Um, so I'm really excited uh, that I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Kerner, who wrote a book about the reformation of the image, and that episode is going to come out in October um, to match up with the Jubilee anniversary. So um, I will also post photos on the show notes of Wittenberg and some of the interesting religious um, items that I saw while I was there.
listening to this episode of Holy Media. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at holymedia.com. That's W-H-O-L-Y media.com. There you can find links to some of the primary documents that Kayvon discusses and the Southern Poverty Law Center's heat map. Also, did you shout something out while listening to the show? Or maybe you're like me and tend to respond to podcasts while you listen to them. Why don't you go ahead and share those thoughts and conversations on Twitter using the show's handle, at Holy Media. And I know, I know, every podcast asks you to review and rate it. But this is particularly important for the new kids on iTunes and Stitcher, like Holy Media. The more you rate and review, the more Holy Media can compete with all the fancy NPR, Radiotopia, and Gimlet shows who have budgets and production teams. So please, 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 if you listen to Holy Media, rate and comment about the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you don't know how, because digital technology really isn't your thing, just shoot me a tweet or post a comment on the website, and we'll provide you with directions. Lastly, music in this episode is by some of the bands that Kayvon mentioned. Why did I use white nationalist music, you ask? Because Kayvon and I think it's important for people to recognize just how insidious this counterculture really is. The bands will not be named so as not to further promote their material and ideology. But think back to while you were listening to the episode. Did that music make you think you were listening to white nationalists? And get excited for next month's episode, when I speak with Isaac Weiner about the sounds of religion. And this is Holy Media.